this is the second week in our new series in the Gospel of Mark. And we're in the Gospel of Mark because the question, who is Jesus? It matters. It's a question that matters. It's a question that people are still asking today. And like I said last week, if we want to grapple with who Jesus really is, then we need to grapple with him on his own terms. We need to turn to the documents that best capture what he actually said and did and how he lived. And the literature produced closest to when he lived is found in the scriptures. And the Gospels are among the closest books written about the life of Jesus. And the Gospels, they're the historical, firsthand, eyewitness accounts about his life. And if we encounter Jesus as he's presented in the Gospel of Mark, we encounter a living Lord who changes everything because he's God in the flesh. He's come to reconcile. He's come to reconcile us to God. He's come to reconcile cities to God. He's come to reconcile the world to God. He's come to reconcile everything to God. And so last week, we looked at the first half of Mark's prologue, and, and Mark's giving us the inside scoop, which most of the people within his gospel do not know, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that he is incarnated, and he's paving the way towards the cross. And today, we look at the second half of Mark's inside scoop, the second half of the prologue. And this is uh, chapter 1, verses 9 through 15, and we see that in coming to be crucified, Jesus fully reveals God as triune. And while Mark doesn't use the word Trinity, uh, it's, it's only by understanding the nature of the Trinity that we can explain why on earth God would have sent his son to be crucified, why he would send his son to pave the road to the cross. And so this morning, we're going to look at three things. First, we're going to look at the center of the universe. Uh, we're going to then look at the center of our little universes. And lastly, we're going to look at an invitation. And in all of this, we'll see how Christ came to bring us out of self-centeredness and into belovedness. What does that mean? Well, let's find out. Open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 9. Mark writes, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. As we know, John the Baptist, he's been out in the wilderness for some time baptizing people, preparing the way of the Lord, preparing the way for the one to come. And the first thing Mark says in this section, he's clear, Jesus came from Nazareth. Jesus came. Jesus is the one. But what we really want to pay attention to is this, when Jesus is baptized, Mark writes, he saw the heavens being torn open. When Jesus was baptized, he saw the heavens being torn open. You see, much of humanity's attempt uh, to define God can be summarized as an attempt to tear the heavens open. Whether it's philosophy or theology, when we start talking about the metaphysical, the beyond physical, we're actually reaching above our pay grade. We're building and constructing ideas to explain the unexplainable. And we try and we pull back to the sky to see God, but what happens? We can't tear the heavens open, and so we settle for what we can construct. And we end up creating gods who look a lot more like us, and we fashion them in our own image, or we build them to suit ourselves and our own needs, or we construct ideologies that may seem completely reasonable to us, but may be utterly offensive to the God of the heavens and the earth. But what's the message of the gospel? God tears the heavens open to reveal himself to us. And he reveals himself as Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one. 
Christianity says this isn't from us, it's from God. And while other religions in the world and other doctrines about God might make this claim of having their doctrine from God, Christianity uniquely makes this claim with the doctrine of the Trinity. If you're making up a doctrine of God, I mean, honestly, if you're making up a doctrine about God, who would ever think of this? Even if you thought of it, why would you put it out there? You know, who would ever believe that God is three persons but one? You know, but since God has torn open the heavens and Christians then have had to deal with the facts about God and how he's revealed himself and how he's revealed himself is this. He's a trinity. Three persons in one, not three gods, but one. Not three expressions of God, but three persons. Three in one. Other religions and other philosophies don't have to deal with this fact. But Christians have to deal with this mind-bending reality and mystery of God and it's a, I believe it's a testimony to divine revelation. But you might be wondering, you know, how am I getting all this information about the Trinity from Jesus' baptism? Well, look again at verse 11. The Spirit descends, and then a voice came from heaven saying, You're my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. The Son is baptized. The Spirit descends. The Father speaks. Father, Son, Spirit. But what is significant is the relationship between the three. The Spirit reveals the love between the Father and the Son. The baptism of Jesus is why St. Augustine went as far as to say that the Spirit is the love between the Father and the Son. The Spirit is the love between the Father and the Son. Daryl Johnson, a pastor in town, in his book, Experiencing the Trinity, he he tells a story to try to flush out what St. Augustine means by this. And it's a true story. A, a, A young family, the mother passes away. And the dad, he's trying the best he can. He's doing a good job. He's trying to provide for his kids. But he always finds dinner time the hardest because it's at dinner that he slows down enough and it hits him that his wife is gone. And at one of these dinners, he recalls a time when one of his his daughters said, Dad, I don't just miss mom. I don't just miss mom. I miss your love for her and her love for you. You see, it was that day in, day out, dinner table sort of love, the conversations and the engagement that made their love tangible and formational to their children's, the, 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 the children's children, uh, the love that they had for one another formed them just as much as the mom formed the children directly or the dad formed the children directly. Their love became tangible. It had substance. Now, this is a great analogy as long as it doesn't diminish the spirit's personhood. He's not an energy or a force. He's not just abstract, but a person, like the Father is a person and like the Son is a person, yet one. Now, if we could peek behind the curtains of the universe, then, what would we find? What's at the center of the universe? Love. Belovedness. Deep, satisfying, life-giving pleasure. Because the Trinity is fundamentally love. God isn't just loving, God is love. Because love has been actively expressed between the three persons of the Trinity for all eternity. So what you find at the center of the universe is a dynamic movement, a passion, a dance, some scholars call it. A dance characterized by mutual, self-giving love. Which means the essence of all reality is love. And the language of love within the scriptures is also glory. Love and glory go hand in hand. So really quickly, before we dig into 
this, this idea of glory and love, we need to define some words because let's be honest, talking about the Trinity, it's some heavy lifting. You know, talking about glory, we don't even really know what that means. So I want to define some words before we move forward. Uh, what is the glory of God? What is the glory of God? It's the beauty, the majesty, the honor of an inherently lovable God. The glory of God is the beauty, the majesty, the honor of an inherently lovable God. And what does it mean to glorify God then? It means to boast and exalt and give thanks for that beauty and majesty and honor and love worthiness of God. How does this relate to the Trinity? The Father glorifies the Son. He exalts in the son's love worthiness. Look again at Mark, verse 11. You're my beloved son. You're my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. This isn't a promotion happening at Jesus' baptism. This is God declaring what has always existed throughout eternity. This is God glorifying and honoring and boasting in a reality which exists with him forever. The father is boasting in the son's love worthiness. You're my beloved But how about Jesus? He glorifies the Father. He says in John 17, Father, glorify your Son so that the Son can glorify you. Constantly, Jesus says in the Gospels, I I didn't come to seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Why? Because the Father, in all his beauty and majesty and honor and love worthiness, deserves such an expression of loving loyalty. So the Son glorifies the Father. What about the Spirit? Again, Jesus prays in John 17 that the glory God gave him might be given to us. Well, how's that possible? The Spirit comes and and sends God's glory to us. So this is what's at the center of the universe. We need to understand this. An infinitely happy God. A God who is filled with deep pleasure and delight and love within himself because because he is a self-glorifying trinity. All of the persons of the Trinity defer to one another in love, which means God is vibrant and God is moving and God is active and he is loving and he is full of mercy and kindness and compassion. But why does all of this matter? Why does all of this matter? Everyone's happy to say that love exists. I think we can agree on that. Everyone's happy to say that love matters. We like to think that love unifies. We love songs like All You Need Is Love. We love songs like Imagine. But it's hard to give any foundation to love if there's no God, let alone if God isn't triune. Because God can only be love if love is present among the persons of the Trinity. If God isn't triune, he could be loving, but he couldn't be love. And without a triune God or without God at all, we can all... We can only say that love is a preference. It's a value. It's something that we've chosen to like among many other values. Or... We can only say love is a function of evolution. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a chemical reaction that helps the species continue to procreate. It's functional. But at the end of the day, then, then we're only um, settling for sentiment. You know, we're just having nice sentimental feelings about an emotion common to the human experience. Or pragmatism. You know, this just helps the species survive. But if God is the robustly loving trinity... Love is at the center of the universe. Love is at the center of reality. And this matters because it changes everything. 
But if this love is at the center of the universe, the real universe, the you know, God-made, billions-years-old universe, what does this mean for our little universes? What's at the center of our little universes? Because we all have our own little universes, don't we? The way that we make sense of the world around us and how we craft the world to make sense of our place in this space and this time. Well, the center of the universe creates a crisis for us in our little universes. It creates a crisis. Because, you know, we might not readily admit this, but we like the universe to revolve around us. You know, we like to be at the center. We don't want to you know, glorify others. We want to be the ones glorified. A few months, months ago, a friend took me to a Canucks game. It was really neat seeing guys with sticks hitting that little black thing around the ice. Good times. And they won. Apparently, I was a lucky charm. Uh, afterwards, I was walking home, and I was walking down Granville Street, and this homeless guy kind of stepped in front of me. And he said, could you go into this convenience store with me and buy me some food? And I really didn't want to stop and buy him some food. I'm just, I'm just being honest. I just wanted to go home. You know, like I was in like the power walk, like the Vancouver power walk, keeping my head down. And, but I got sucked into his orbit, and so I figured I should stop. And so I did. I stopped. And I went into the convenience store with him, and, and he said, you know, could I buy some milk? And I said, yeah, sure, that's fine. And he said, can I buy some Cheetos? And I said, sure, that's fine. He said, can I buy some you know, nuts? And I'm like, oh. Whatever, fine. Uh, and, you know, on and on. And we get to the cashier and check out, and it's like $30. And I'm not impressed, but I'm in a rush, and so I just pay nonetheless. And we walk outside, and he, he just, like, starts tearing up and saying, like, thank you, thank you, thank you. Like, that was so generous. No one has ever done this for me. I just stopped him. I just stopped him. I said, look, like, you shouldn't be thanking me. Um, I'm not generous. I didn't want to stop. I honestly had no intention of stopping, and frankly, I'm probably not even going to notice the money missing from my account. I only stopped because Jesus is Lord. So thank Jesus, not me, because he deserves the glory, not me, because all I care about right now is getting home. He was flabbergasted. <laughs> now, this is not how I recommend you care for people. Just let me be clear about that. But I bring this up to say this. If you could have only looked at that event on the surface, without knowing my internal reality, what would it look like? Well, Alistair, he's a pretty generous person. He's pretty selfless. He's pretty willing to be interrupted and give his time to people in need. But you see, self-centeredness is tricky because we can seem selfless, but still be totally self-centered. I was only generous because it wasn't too much of an inconvenience for me. If he had asked me to walk a block down the street, no way. You, know? you see, we don't mind giving our time or some of our money or some of our energy, as long as it doesn't inconvenience us too badly, as long as it fits within our agenda, as long as it doesn't disrupt what our focus of life is. So sure, we can fit in some acts of generosity and selflessness here and there, as long as it's orbiting around us and our schedule. Self-centeredness, it's tricky, but it's also sneaky. It's really sneaky. Think about people who say yes all the time. You know, the friend who's always there when you need them, who's just, yes, no matter what you're asking, they're always there to care for you, and it seems they do that even to their own detriment. I've been one of those people. You know what psychologists call us? People who don't understand boundaries. You know, when, when you say yes all the time, do you think these people are doing it out of love? Goodness, no. We're doing it out of need. You know, we're seeking approval, or we're seeking affirmation, or we're seeking to derive a sense of identity. All of these yeses, then, are actually self-centered. Life is still revolving around that person. 
We can even be self-centered then in our approach to God. We may be sincerely interested in God, sincerely interested in following him, but we still want God to fit into our universes. And we serve him, but with conditions. What do I mean? Well, maybe you do all the right things, you follow all the rules, but you expect life to get better then. Or you expect that you'll always get the job of your preference, or that you'll always have favor, or that you'll find the spouse and have the kids or have the perfect life that you envisioned. You name it. And you may never say these things out loud, because most good Christians don't. It might be precognitive, but if these things don't go as planned, if the conditions aren't met, if they don't emerge as you, as, as you hope, well, what then? Well, maybe you throw in the towel altogether with the faith thing. That didn't work out. God doesn't care. Or maybe you keep going through the motions, but your heart is just totally not in it, and you'll, you'll find a way of satisfying your life somewhere else. But you see, it's self-centered, because we didn't seek God's glory. We were still seeking our own glory. What does it mean, then, for people who are perpetually struggling with you know, self-centeredness to give God glory? How do a self-centered people give the creator of the universe glory? Tim Keller puts it this way. You're not glorifying something if you don't find it beautiful in and of itself. You're not glorifying something if you don't find it beautiful in and of itself. And you're not glorifying someone if you're doing it conditionally. You're not glorifying someone if you're doing it conditionally. So here are two questions you can ask yourself to, to see, are you really willing to glorify God? Question one, will you do everything God asks? Everything, without exception. Question two, Will you give thanks to God for everything that happens in your life without exception? If these questions don't make you like crawl in your skin, there is something fundamentally wrong with you. Like you're not understanding you know, the gravity of these questions. Like when I asked myself these questions this week, they freaked me out because they expose how much I want to control my own life. They expose how I want to make God fit into my purposes and desires. They expose how I want to just selectively choose from Scripture. They expose how I want God just to give me the good stuff, man. You know, the, the blessings and how I'm reluctant to thank him for the suffering and the struggling or the loss that I may face in life. You see, the Trinity creates a crisis for us in our little universes because we're self-centered. And if we're going to start orbiting around God, it means we have to start giving him glory instead of ourselves. And if we were to do this, it would change everything. It would change our approach to the city. You know, you can't just take from the city. You can't just leverage it for your own gain. Rather, we would start giving ourselves to the city sacrificially and mostly without any recognition just for the sake of the common good. It would radically change our approach to relationships. They, they, they can't be disposable. You know, you can't just associate with people that might have something to offer to you or be available solely when it's convenient. But at this point, maybe you're feeling a little defensive. That's okay, I understand that. Maybe you're thinking, well, God asks us to glorify him. Isn't that self-centered? Nope, it's not. Because God is inviting us to dance in the reality of his mutual self-giving love. And if we accept, 
We're being brought into this reciprocating, uh, life-infusing, all-encompassing, world-shattering love. And it will change everything. But we're afraid to accept that invitation because we're afraid that we'll somehow lose ourselves. Which is precisely why God sent his son into the world. He knows we're too busy navel-gazing. He knows we're caught up in ourselves. He knows how hopelessly self-centered we are and how hopelessly we want the world to revolve around us. And he knows something has to be done in order for us to be reconciled with what's at the center of the universe. Which, let's go back to Mark. Jesus, he's baptized by John. The heavens, they're torn open. And in doing so, God more fully reveals who he is to us. He reveals his delight in his son. He reveals that mutual self-giving love is at the center of the universe. But throughout the scriptures, when the heavens are torn open, it is also a picture of God coming down to save. And it's precisely because of who God is. It's because God is a God of love that God is acting by sending his son in the world to save. And the tearing open of the heavens is tied intimately to Jesus' baptism for good reason. Later in Mark's gospel, in uh, chapter 10, verse 38, Jesus himself speaks of how he's going to suffer and die. What does he call it? His baptism. He's come into the world for a baptism of death. Why does he focus on it that way? Well, even Paul in Romans, he says, when, when you're baptized, right? When you go into the waters, you're being baptized into the death of the Lord. And then when you're raised out of them, you're being raised to life. There is this association of death with baptism. And so the Son glorifies the Father by accepting this baptism of death. And he's willing to follow the Father all the way to the cross, even though it's going to involve his own suffering and death. Now, it doesn't seem obvious at first, but this is why Mark goes from talking about the baptism of Jesus Immediately into the temptation. Yes, we still have more scripture to get through. Immediately into the temptation. Because the temptation has everything to do with God bringing salvation into the world. Look at verses 12 through 13 with me. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. And why does the Spirit immediately send Jesus straight into the wilderness for his own pleasure? No. For his own sake? No. For us? Yes. He goes into the wilderness to pave a new way forward for us. His road to the cross, it begins in the wilderness. You see, Jesus is going straight into the source of our self-centeredness. For humanity, falling into temptation gave birth to our self-centeredness. And the wilderness has always exacerbated that self-centeredness. And so Jesus, he, he's led by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan in the wilderness so that Jesus could do what no person or people have ever been able to accomplish. That's what's happening in the wilderness and the temptation. Jesus is doing what no people or person uh, have ever been able to accomplish. Here's hell. Uh, think of Adam and Eve. Satan enters into the garden in the form of a snake. But, you know, what's at the heart of the temptation? A commandment from God. You know, don't eat from the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat as much as you want from this tree, the tree of life, but don't eat from that tree. And 
How does Satan tempt him? He says, well, can you trust? Can you trust this, that God really has your best interests at mind? He didn't explain why you couldn't do this. You want to know why? He's withholding from you. Because when you eat from it, you'll be like him. He's intimidated by you. you he, he doesn't trust you. If you eat from this tree, you're going to be like him. You see, God issued the command just in hopes that who he is would be enough reason for obedience. And Satan says, who he is isn't trustworthy enough at all. What happened? Well, sin entered into the world. But what was its shape? Self-centeredness. A distrust of God. A trust in one's own decision-making rather than the Lord's. You know, Adam and Eve, they, they give in to thinking that the world, yes, should revolve around them and not God. And as a result, sin and death enters into the world. But Jesus, Jesus faces the temptations of Satan and remains committed to the trustworthiness of the Father. He remains unswervingly committed to glorifying the Father and he follows the Father's command. But the command given to Jesus in this wilderness is infinitely more difficult than the command given to Adam. God says to Jesus, go to this tree and be crushed. And as we know, Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. And because Jesus orbits around the Father's will, he undoes the curse and consequences of sin. He overcomes death. Or think about Israel. They're slaves in Egypt. And the exodus happens. God tears open the heavens and saves in powerful ways. They see the most miraculous things ever happening. He brings them out where? To the wilderness. And after seeing all these miraculous acts and his saving power in the wilderness, he asks them to trust him. Just to trust him, to follow him, to keep his ways. And he set them apart to be a witness to the world of his goodness and his saving power. But what happens? Israel can only see the wilderness. They can only see the dryness or the thorns or the barren wasteland. And they don't trust God. And they grumble and they complain. And Israel thinks that the world should orbit around them, not God. And as a result, they give into false worship and glorifying idols. But Jesus, Jesus enters into the wilderness with no comfort, no solace, with only thorns. He hungers and he thirsts. And we're told that he, by Luke that Satan tempted him with bread. But Jesus keeps his heart and his eyes fixed on the Father because he's paving the way of God. Satan tempts him with false worship, but he refuses to glorify anyone but the Father because his world orbits around the Father and glorifying him. And so Jesus does what Israel was never able to do. He becomes a light to all the nations of the way of God and his salvation. You see, in facing the temptations of Satan in the wilderness, Jesus did what no person or people have been able to do. He did what no person or people were able to do. He remained utterly faithful to glorifying the Father. He doesn't give in to temptation even when it's exacerbated by the wilderness. So the center of the universe, it collides with our little universes. It creates a crisis. It exposes how self-centered we are. But Christ has come and he issues an invitation. Look at verses 14 through 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What's the invitation? To recognize that the time is fulfilled. 
that everything God has been doing in the world to reconcile us to himself is happening. Jesus has come and done what no one could ever do. He's the second Adam, not bringing death into the world, but life. He's the true Israel, you know, completely faithful to the ways of God. He's bringing God's salvation, God's new exodus. And so Jesus declares that the kingdom of God is at hand, which means the kingship of God is at hand or the rule of God is at hand. And how is it at hand? Because God himself is present, the king is walking on earth, and where the king is, the reign is present. And he's doing it all because the father delights in the son, and the son delights in the father. He's doing it all because the father loves the son, and the, love of the, and the, the son loves the father. And the invitation for us is to start orbiting around him. The invitation is to realign ourselves with what's actually at the center of the universe. But how do we accept this invitation and move out of self-centeredness. Mark uses two words, repent and believe. We recognize that we've been the center of our own little universes, and, that, and we repent of this. We look at all the ways we've been trying to glorify ourselves, and we repent of this. But we also change our minds about who Jesus is, because repentance is to change one's mind. And then we glorify Jesus, We glorify him by repenting. We glorify him by giving him our lives. We glorify him by having broken and contrite hearts. And we glorify him by giving him thanks for accomplishing what we could never do ourselves. Overcoming temptation in the wilderness and Satan and sin so that we can share in God's love. And the good news of the gospel is that only Jesus has the power to bring us out of self-centeredness. Only Jesus has the power to bring us out of self-centeredness. You say the the, the way of overcoming self-centeredness isn't by trying to overcome your self-centeredness. Because then you're just focusing on yourself and becoming more self-centered. If we believe in Jesus, he's the one who does it. That's all it takes. He's the one who will free us from navel-gazing. We gaze on him and he transforms us. And best of all, he'll free us from the tireless pursuit of seeking our own glory and bring us into belovedness. He wants to bring us in to share his belovedness. The love the Father has for us is because of the love the Father has for his Son. And the Son wants to bring us into that love. Because everything we were trying to find in seeking our own glory, we find in glorifying God. We might have been trying to seek satisfaction or contentment or joy or love or meaning or purpose. But when we glorify God, we find all those things in a far more substantial and life-giving way because he's the source of all those things. He's the source of love. So what we need to understand in Mark's prologue is that is why God sent his son into the world. And that is why the son is willing to pave this way to the cross for our sake. Because since God is love, he will stop at nothing to bring us into his love, even if that means sending his son on the way of the cross.